Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are an award-winning, chart-topping podcast for people who value real, different dialogues. And on this, part one of our super special series with the real DEA narcos, Steve Murphy and Javier Pena. These are American heroes who partnered with Colombian law enforcement to take down Pablo Escobar, the world's first narco terrorist. And their story is the basis for the Netflix series Narcos. And as you know, it's become one of the top most popular uh, shows ever on Netflix. And if you're a fan of the show, this episode's going to knock you over. And even if you're not, you're going to love it because Javier and Murph take us behind the scenes on how they worked together for about six years, not just to uh, get Escobar himself, but really to dismantle his gang and put him in a radically weakened position and ultimately bring him to justice. You'll learn what it feels like to have a $300,000 bounty on your head, how they work together uh, with multiple law enforcement agencies and dealt with the emotional ups and downs of this long, often lonely, and of course, extraordinarily dangerous mission. And uh, how Murph and Javier had to bend and in some cases break the rules to make sure that this happened and why they think the courage of the Colombian people and their partners in Colombian law enforcement are the real heroes here. And you're also going to hear in their voices the powerful bond of friendship that was developed between the two of them. Having spent a couple days with them here, they flew out to Santa Cruz to be with me, which was awesome. Thank you, guys. I got to got to know them and got to see their special bond. Now, this is part one. In part two, you'll hear the traumatic conclusion of how they ultimately brought Escobar to justice. And then, in addition, we dig into their life and leadership lessons they've learned throughout their incredible careers. I think you uh, are going to be fascinated and captivated by these two gentlemen. Um, go to Lockhead.com and check out the show notes for this episode. Learn more about their great book, Manhunters, and about their lives today as teachers and public speakers. Uh, they're doing incredible things out in the world. Now, uh, what do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tecovis have in common? They all use my friends at NetSuite from Oracle. And NetSuite's our founding sponsor. And the reason I'm so proud of that is uh, NetSuite is the platform for growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow, you have to have the right technology and platform. If you want to take your company from 2 million to 10 million or 10 million to hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite from Oracle gives you what you need to turbocharge your growth, which is a full picture of your finances, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your smartphone and, of course, from your computer. NetSuite gives you the visibility and control to make the right decisions at the right time and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500, and NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. To schedule your free demo and get your free guide, The 7 Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, Visit netsuite.com slash different today. That's netsuite.com slash different because with NetSuite, business grows here. And uh, my friends at Splunk want to help you lead in the data age. As you know, getting digital has become one of the top three priorities for most CEOs around the globe. And Splunk is the leader in data to everything. As a matter of fact, the demand for getting digital and bringing data to everything is so high that Splunk is one of the fastest growing enterprise technology companies in history because Splunk brings data to every question, every decision, and every action. Visit Splunk.com slash D2E to learn how to turn data into doing. That's Splunk.com slash D2E as in data to everything. I also want to thank my buddy Morgan Wright. He's a law enforcement and security expert. He's been a multi-time guest on this podcast, and uh, he was instrumental in setting up my time with Javier and with Murph. Thanks, uh, thanks Morgan. I deeply appreciate it. All right. Now, hey-ho. Let's go. A 
thank you for having us out here. Yeah, we appreciate it. Looking not, forward to it. Not just on the phone, but in your studio. I know. It's so so mm-hmm. amazing to have yeah. you guys here. And in your home. You got a beautiful home. Eric. Oh, yeah. thank you. And a yeah. lovely wife. Yes. I'm definitely uh, blessed. Very, very blessed to the good Lord. <laughs> I must have done something right in a prior life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is exciting to be out here, though. Well, I'm glad, and I'm stoked. You know, the weather worked out, and it's winter on the East Coast. Way winter, right? <laughs> yeah, it's not so wintry here right now. It's very nice. Yeah, I'm glad we had an opportunity to break some bread together, discuss nice. some ideas. Yep. Yes, I think we could probably help you out along the way here somewhere. Our, 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 <laughs> I need as much help as I can get. Murph. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the other way around. Vice versa. Vice right? yep. versa. Uh, so, I mean, what what an incredible life that you guys have led and let me just say off the top you know i'm a huge fan and i really want to thank you for your service and commitment not only to our country to to columbia but really as corny as it might sound i think you guys are treasures to humanity oh thank you for saying that very nice of you thank you we appreciate it eric we get called a lot of names and that's not usually one of them <laughs> <laughs> well i think you guys are you know absolute heroes and, and real treasures and i'm so excited to have this time yeah, with we you are too we're yeah we're excited to be here so why don't we get right to it tell me about um pablo escobar okay <laughs> well you know pablo escobar i mean uh we had heard of his name but we really didn't know much about him, you know, until we get uh, to Colombia, and I get there in 1988. He was surfacing in the in the mid 80s, in the low 80s, but no one really knew much about him, and uh, they knew he was a trafficker. But once we started actually going after him, we noticed that Pablo Escobar was uh, had his own empire built on uh, terrorism. Pablo Escobar was one of the richest traffickers uh, in the world, and he built his empire on terrorism, on violence. And it's something we had never seen before. So this is why we weren't really ready when we started going after Escobar because we had never seen this type of tactics before. What do you mean by weren't ready? Like what, what we were you expecting and what yeah. did you find? I mean, I, I you know, I, I mean, I came in from Austin, Texas. I was a special agent there for four years. Where How I was old working. were you at the time? I was, uh, what, 28 years old. And I was working street stuff, uh, street buys, undercover, surveillance. It's what a normal agent does when he's learning the job. And I was learning it, you know, I call it from the street uh, sense of the word. In other words, buying ounces, uh, going after heroin dealers, you know, uh, but low-level type of a trafficker. In Austin at this time, in mid-'80s, I mean, it's a great town. I mean, the music industry was in full blast. I mean, I was going to go, we were seeing George Strait play for free believe it or not it was the the industry was the music industry and it was you know college town university of texas uh, and you were a young guy yeah, young guy single so i was hitting bars i was doing it all you know and uh, so I'll, you know i'm hispanic mexican of a uh, i grew up in the border so i was doing a lot of undercover work but it was smaller level then after four years with dea you can put in to go to a foreign assignment and i put in for mexico and uh, my boss says, Javier, did you put him for Colombia? I said, no, sir. Well, you got Colombia. And uh, basically, he said, uh, so that's that, a mistake, you, sir. Are you <laughs> saying that your superiors didn't know the difference between Mexico I, and I Colombia? so. Anyway, somebody – anyway, so I did not know even where Colombia was. So he said, you want to fight it? I said, nah, I'll go to Colombia. I have to go look in the map and <laughs> see where Colombia was. But anyway, so I've always wanted to see the other side of the trafficker, the, the major leagues, like we call it, the major league of traffic. So I said, you know what, Colombia, I learned, you know, how the top people already know how the bottom people work, the street people. So that was one of my uh, incentives of of going to Colombia. And again, getting back to Pablo Escobar, once we started actually going. I hate to interrupt you, but did you go down there for him for that assignment? No, no. That's another misnomer. I went to Colombia and basically I was there a couple of months before my boss. 
guy by the name of Joe Toth, who's a great boss, said, hey, Javier, you're going to be assigned uh, the Medellin cartel, the Pablo Escobar investigation. So I said, okay, uh, let me go look at all the case files. I did not know much about Escobar. I had heard his name, but not really that much. So you, you uh, didn't know what you were getting into? No, no, of course not. Did not know what I was getting into. Is it safe into. to say at that time he'd be considered the number one terrorist in the world? We, we did not know that. You at didn't that know time, that no, yet. We did not know that. Not until like in the mid, in the late eighties, and we got there just in the heart of it, is when he actually declared war on Colombia. In war, we did see, you know, like I said, we were not used to, you know, the car bombs, the famous car bombs that killed a lot of innocent people. Uh, I've heard. Is you, this right? Have I heard like? As many as 50 car bombs a day at a certain it, points? We were counting. I mean, there was a lot of car bombs. Basically, we would count about 10 or 15 on a daily basis. A couple of days, it'd be 40 to 50. Uh, but he was putting them at shopping centers, at uh, restaurants. And just ran random people? At random. He just pure terrorism. Kill. Yes. Mm -hmm. He wanted to kill as many innocent people as he could because this was his fight against Colombia. And we try to explain it in in that he challenged his country. And actually, and we like to say that he actually won when he, and we'll talk about this later, when he self-surrendered, but into the conditions that he had uh, requested, which the government allowed him to do it. So the terrorism was new to us. Like I said, the, the car bombs, the assassinations, the bounties on police officers, the killing of presidential candidate, a bombing of a commercial airline. I mean, I could go on and on, but this is why we call Pablo Escobar the inventor of narco-terrorism. Yeah. We had never seen this type of war before. And am I remembering right that he had bounties on the heads of police officers and public officials? And you know what, Chris? That is one of the most pathetic things we had ever seen, bounties. You are correct. He had bounties, but I like to say a bounty on a human being, a police officer. And you know how much he was paying? I even hate to mention the amount. $100 a hit for the killing of any police officer. Killed thousands of police officers for the bounties of $100 a hit. I arrested one of those Sicarios, 15-year-old Sicario. I never will forget. 15 we years old. 15 you? years old. He was at a club. The informant called me. A lot of cops were not. It was on a Saturday night. They were not there. So it says the informant only wanted to tell me where he was. So I had to go meet the informant. It was like at a bar. So when we arrested him, we brought him back to the base. Obviously, he fought at the dance floor. I'll never forget. Pulled out a gun. By this time, my backup showed up. So we subdued him. We took him back. And he was one of the, we knew him. He was a deadly shikari for Pablo Escobar. And uh, when we took him back to the at base. At 15 years old. 15 years old. One of the most incredible interviews, one of the incredible confessions that I had ever heard. He says, you know what? And he told us, he said, I'm 15 years old, but I've already killed 10 police officers, $100 a hit. He says, I will die and I will kill for Pablo Escobar. Why? He's given me money. I was able to take my family out of poverty. My mom has shelter, has food. I can, you know, afford uh, to feed her. She's happy. And then he says, you know what? My life expectancy, I'll be dead by 21, 22 years old. So my life belongs to Pablo Escobar, and I've already killed 10 police officers. He says, I shoot them behind when they're walking the beat, go behind them, shoot them back with their head. At the end of the day, I go collect. If I kill three police officers, I get $300. That was that mentality, which, again, is we were not used to that type of mentality. I mean, nobody is used to that type. Uh, so this was a different type of war in going after a criminal, in going after a terrorist, a narco trafficker, because we were not used to this. We had never seen it. We, you know, How do you fight someone of this nature that is killing innocent people? Uh, I know this might make me sound naive, but... How can people be trained like that to devalue human life like that? What circumstance do you need to be in where doing that as a 15-year-old seems like the right thing or a good thing or the smart thing? Like, what is it that convinces a 15-year-old to do that? You know, in different parts of the world, you know, it's, it, they're not raised like we are here in the United States. We, we as Americans 
you know, we place a high value on human life. Law-abiding citizens do. The criminals don't. It, it surprised me when I went down and partnered up with Javier that uh, we had a bunch of police officers that were killed that were friends of ours. And we went to the funeral home. The police have their own funeral home down there. They have so many deaths. And it was, and I'm and I'm watching the Colombian police officers, and they were they were almost theatrical and crying and, and wailing and uh, you know getting down on the casket and hugging the casket and, and you know in our culture here in the United States that's, it's not like that in law enforcement typically right. But then afterwards, we you know we all go out to a little bar and and it's you know what we would do here in the U.S. is we would you know toast the person that was killed and and reminisce and maybe tell stories. We sat down and I told the sergeant, I said, hey, listen, I'm really sorry for the loss of your friends here. And, the, and his response was, Capena. And that's like, hey, it's over. What's done is done. And they were done with it. They moved on. They were over it that quick the same evening where one hour earlier they were just crying their eyes out. And, and really, I mean, just your heart breaks for them. And an hour later, we're sitting having a beer and it's like you know, nothing happened. And is it because death and murder was just so much a part of the culture or what, what was it? That people were like well, that. Well, there was a lot of killings that that were going on. It was just a way of life. I hate to say it. It's it, it was a way of life, like Steve said. Yeah, they they killed them. They buried them. Of course, the family's suffering, but then life goes on because there's another operation. There's some more sicarios. There's another terrorism act that is going on. So you have to adapt. You have to adjust. And and the search would keep on going. I mean, of course you're hurting, but the world goes on because uh, there's still uh, Pablo Escobar was still killing a lot of other people. What was the sort of the reason for the mission when you originally, Javier, went down there? Why is the American government sending DEA special right. agents into a foreign country to deal with a foreign terrorist? That's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up. A lot of people think we just went there on our own and said, hey, we're going to be here. No, no. We DEA, we have uh, offices in probably all over the world right now. We have a, and we do a lot of liaison. We do training. And the main thing is we do intelligence exchange, intelligence uh, sharing. So when Pablo Escobar first, like you said, got on the on the, ra on the radar when he started killing people. And, uh, you know, there was a famous general in Colombia, Octavio Vargas Silva, and I call him the architect. Never got the credit that he deserved. That's why I bring him up. He's the one who had that foresight, who had that leadership quality in him and said that, you know what, Pablo Escobar is out of control. We need to establish sort of a, and I hate to use the word task force, because it really wasn't a task force, but it was a uh, basically what the Colombian government said: we're going to go after one person, and we're going to we're going to put in all our assets, and our only mission is to capture and or kill Pablo Escobar. So, so was it a situation where uh, the Colombian government actually asked? help from the United States yes, government. You very, were there at their invitation to help. A after Pablo Escobar escaped, Steve's already, uh, you know, he came in from Miami and uh, our, the Colombian government, and I'm not sure if it was the president or it was the general who called our bosses, hey, I want Javier and Steve there because we were working Pablo Escobar before. We knew him and we knew the, the cops that they had picked. So we knew because you'd been team. in Colombia for a while right, at that right, point. Right, right. So they asked for us by name and our boss on the nurse says, you know, Pablo Escobar. And we heard the news that night when uh, they tried to go and get him out of his so-called prison and bring him to a real prison in Bogota. That's when the famous firefight, that's when the famous escape happened. So Steve and I arrived the very next day at the, the so-called prison, but we were invited by the Colombian government. Yes, by the Colombian They government. felt like they couldn't handle him on their own. They could handle him, but they needed help. They yeah. needed, and we had, like I said, and we have offices all over the world. And at that time, we had a lot of informants in the United States. We had a lot of people that were working for Pablo Escobar. So, and DA did something that was really never uh, done before. They categorized, it was called, it was a... Basically, a uh, TKO program in that the U.S. offices had to go after anybody that was working for Pablo Escobar in the States. 
which was a great help for us. So our offices, especially the Florida offices, were concentrating on Pablo Escobar Associates. So a lot of information was bringing in, it was coming in from Miami. Because those guys would sing when you caught them. Yeah, they'd sing and say, hey, I I know where Escobar is or I know where his henchmen are. So we were getting great information. What better way, Steve and I being there on site with a Colombian Police, that was a specialized uh, unit called Bloque de Búsqueda, search block, that we were there on a timely basis. Hey, guys, there's an associate working for Pablo Escobar. Here's his name. Here's his number. Then the task, I mean, the, the search block would do an operation. Javier, Steve, we just found this ledger. Man, I remember one of the first ledgers. It was all the Miami people Pablo Escobar had in Miami. Cell numbers, phone numbers, locations. So it was a gold mine. So it was something so that both countries were doing at the same time. And, I see. You know, I wish this was being done more nowadays. It's being done, but back then we had more of a purpose. We had more of a mission uh, helping each other out, which is, I like to say, that's what really, you know, helped us in bringing down Escobar towards the end. So this in no way, shape, or form was some kind of a covert operation or a CIA cloak and dagger thing. I mean, you were there working shoulder to shoulder with the Colombians. This was overt. It was, it was completely out in the open. There were no secrets. You know, I mean, we're doing wiretaps. We being the Colombian National Police are doing wiretaps on Pablo and his henchmen's phones. You know, and you hear reference to the two gringos, and that's Javier and Murphy. <laughs> you know, and you hear him say the names, Pinion Murphy. And, and we might get Escobar, to- you can hear that in the conversations. Yeah, and his voice is, you know, you think of this evil person, you think he's got this low, booming, commanding voice, and you listen to him on the radio. It's it's this high pitched, squeaky voice that just it's kind of comical, to be honest with you. Is it a little bit like Mike Tyson? <laughs> I, well, I don't want to. Piss no, off, I mean, I don't want to. Piss piss I don't Mike. mean any disrespect, but the first time you hear Mike Tyson talk, you're like, what? Yeah, is it yeah. a little bit like that? Very similar, very similar. But you know, we joke about it when we're doing our shows on stage. We joke about it that you know this is not like that TV show Cheers where everybody knows your name. This is not somebody you want to know your name. So that was not a comfortable feeling at all. And at that point, uh, once he knew who you were, knew you by name. Was the bounty on your heads at that point? Well, no, it was before that. But, um, you know, to be fair, it was on every DEA agent. It just so happened that Javier and I were the, you know, the two guys assigned to work in Medellin. So, so this is the, the late 80s, right? This was early uh, 90s. I now? got there in 91. 91. So June of 91 is when he escaped or when he surrendered to his prison. And he had $300,000 on the head for any DEA agent or you guys specifically or or. It was for every DEA agent, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. But we, like I said, since we were on the base, in the base, the search block was located at an old police, uh, Columbia National Police training barracks. So it was in the middle of a neighborhood. And the neighborhood people all knew us. And at nighttime, there was one little bar called Candilejas. And, you know, to get away from the, like I said, just to go relieve your mind, would go to this little bar have a couple of burgers, a couple of beers. So the people knew us. They'd come up to us. And, uh, and they knew exactly they, what you were doing exactly. there. Of course. We're, you know, we were the DEA agents. And, and maybe, Javier, you could have fit in a little bit. Yeah. Because yeah. you're Mexican heritage. Right, right. But uh, I'm English-Irish. I don't fit in a Hispanic <laughs> country. <laughs> well, and, and how tall are you, Murph? I'm 6'2". I, I used to have light-colored hair. I have light-colored mm-hmm. eyes, light-colored skin. <laughs> and you're white as shit, right? <laughs> stick out, stick as out, am I. Like, stick out like a sore <laughs> So it's like, uh, who are these dudes yeah. here? Like They, they knew so who the, you the were and what you were doing. Knew the, they all knew who we were because the word got out. And like I said, we, we used to have a couple of beers. I mean, you have to. After a hard day's work, you'd go relax. And it just be, I don't know, about a couple of hundred yards from the base had a fence. And then there was, like you said, right outside were the neighborhood people houses. And uh, so, yes, yes, they they, they knew who we were and uh, everybody knew there around Medellin uh, who we were. So there was then another right across the, the, the barracks, another little coffee place. So, yes, everybody knew. But, you know, that was our relaxation. My wife and I used to go shopping at the mall in Bogota. People in the hallways would stop and stare at me as I'm walking by, and I'm thinking, well, is my fly open? You know, do I have a booger hanging on my nose? I don't know what's going on. But you get used to it, you know. They're just looking at the tall white guy and his wife. Like, who the heck are you? (laughs) Given that you're in the community, everybody knows who you are, and given his famous expression, you can either take the bullets or the money or the money or the bullets, 
there were a lot of, and given the $300,000 on your head, and I'm sure it was on your wife's head as well, right? No. He didn't not, want, no? You were no. worried about her safety? Or? Oh, well, I was worried about her, but he didn't put a price tag he on didn't. it that we knew of. But my, my point being, and car bombs going off all the time, and, and like, how do you deal with just that level of personal risk? Well, just keep in mind, they didn't send us down there because we're really smart people, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, you know, how do you deal with that? It's, this is going to sound, law enforcement people and, and military will understand what I'm getting ready to say, as well as all first responders. It's the excitement. So if, if you're in your line of work as a, as a chief marketing officer, then you want to be the, the go to the highest levels, which you accomplished. You know, we, we've read up on you. You accomplished that, <laughs> those you. goals. Yeah. So if you're going to be a drug investigator, do you just want to bust street level people all the time, which really doesn't have any effect on the drug uh, activities at all? Wouldn't you like to go for the highest level? And that's what Javier was talking about when he transferred to Columbia from Austin. You know, he wanted to see how that upper echelon worked. And that was the cool thing about this entire investigation is it's the first time that an entire organization from top to bottom, we just didn't cut the head off this snake. We chopped that body up on this thing. After, after Pablo was dead and all was said and done, to our knowledge, there was only one surviving member of the Medellin cartel. That was a guy named Popeye who just died last week. He died in jail. He was a free man for a couple of years. He did his time in Columbia, came out and... You know, he he was uh, he had his own movie and book and Netflix show and all that stuff. <laughs> but he just couldn't stay away from the life of crime. He went back to jail and he died of stomach cancer just last week. I'm so terribly sorry to hear about that. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we are we too have, right. We might have <laughs> raised a beard of that. I'm yeah. <laughs> but you know, but the point being here, that was believe it or not, that's the first time we took out an entire organization. Top to bottom, literally. Right. 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 And so then what happens is we all know. Now, did that stop cocaine trafficking? Well, of course not. Right. It's, uh, th- people say, well, did you really have a positive effect on the trafficking of cocaine by taking out Pablo Escobar and his organization? We did. It had a positive fa- effect. It lasted for probably two weeks because then the Cali cartel steps up and took over. Javier goes back down mm. in the late 90s and they take out the Cali cartel. Then the North Valley cartel steps up. We take them out. And then the guy named Don Berner steps up. And it just, first of all, there's so many evil people in the world who are waiting to take advantage of people like you and me and your listeners that, you know, when somebody gets arrested, hell, there's 100 people that are ready to take that spot. So, and this is getting a little bit off track, but, you know, people say, well, why? You can get way off track with me. <laughs> People say, why are we even having a war on drugs? Well, first of all, the war on drugs, that's one of the biggest misnomers it's ever been. You know, I mean, think about this. So we're going after the world's first narco-terrorist, the world's most wanted criminal, a guy who can who controls 80% of the cocaine market. Wow. I mean, you preach in your books. You know, you can be different or you can be better, right? He was different. <laughs> he was different, and he controlled 80% of his market. We call that a monopoly, right? Yeah, well, in our books, we call that a category queen or a category king, right? There you go. So if if that's who you're going after, when we declare war and we get our allies lined up, we have all our personnel ready to go, we have the materials that they need, the resources, the resupply lines, I mean, everything that goes along with that. Well, we're going after the world's biggest cocaine trafficker, and what they do? They send Javier and me up to Medellin. They sent two guys. 28 years old, and how, how old were you when you got there, Murph? Oh, I was probably about 34. Yeah. So, you know, so I, that's just my point about the, the and And you guys were it. I mean, obviously, the Colombians you're working with, but in terms of DEA. Right. It was only Steve and I. But like I said, we had a specialized, you know, one of the things that, like I said, there were a lot of firsts that were done. Another first that was done by the Columbia National Police was they handpicked their guys to the special team that was going after Escobar because we learned a lesson in the beginning. We had guys that were working with us, but they were from Medellin, 1980. I'll never forget. We got a couple of lieutenants, uh, but they were on the payroll for Escobar. But what Escobar did, and, and you know what? When you talk about Escobar, we studied him. We worked him. This guy was just on top of way ahead of other traffickers in in that vision, that terrorism. It's a bad. It was a bad vision, but he had a vision, you know. In in that he was uh, the people that were at the search block. He found out who they were, so he went to their families. 
I mean, obviously sent to Sicarius to say, your son's working uh, at the search block, so uh, I want him to do the right thing. There's information, they're coming after me, he needs to give you a call. And that's another example of that, you know, uh, Plator Plomo. If it's done, then I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill him, I'm going to kill all your family. So you can make some money off of this, or you all can die. So that was whoever thinks of that mischief, that uh, that vision that he had. So at the beginning, c- people would call him, hey, they're coming after you. You need to get away. So they, w- they would make a phone call. So once we learned that, then we pretty much all said, you know what? Next time, only people that are not from Medellin will be assigned to the search block, which helped. Because he had Medellin wired. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he had Medellin wired. You know, all the Sicarios, we put the number at about 500. So anytime somebody would come in and- 500 assassins ready to go. 500 assassins, probably more. But, you know, he had everything wired. They would tell him. So, you know, hey, uh, the lieutenant would make a phone call and we arrested a couple of our guys for doing that. So then that new procedure we put in place, we just brought in guys that were from Bogota and Steve and I knew them and they were friends of ours. So they trusted us. We trusted them, which made it a something. It was kind of a unique. I mean, this is great. It's uh, this is movie material, really. I mean, you know, in that we the picked, folks at uh, Netflix agreed with you. <laughs> <laughs> they did, and I did not believe Netflix. Well, yeah, that's another story. But yeah, uh, but it was just something, you know, that in uh, when. Uh, when Pablo Escobar escaped, you know, going back to the people that we trusted, you got to remember that this was based on revenge on Pablo Escobar. Why? Because all the police officers that Pablo killed, all the innocent people for being at the wrong place at the wrong time. So, you know, we tell it now. We, we didn't tell it back there. But you know what? Our orders, the police were telling us, Javier, Steve, we're not here to seize money. We're not here to seize dope. I'm going to say it. We're here to kill Pablo Escobar. Why? Because of all the police officers, all the innocent people Pablo Escobar killed, all the innocent families. You know, I talk about the famous Avianca bombing where he put a bomb on a commercial airline, 120 innocent people for being for flying from Bogota to Cali were killed under the orders of Pablo Escobar. How do you how does a person do this? How does a person put a, a bomb at the DOS building? The DOS was like the Colombian FBI office where about a hundred people is a building puts a bomb packed it with dynamite, blows it up in the morning, the whole building is demolished. How do you do that? How do you kill parents and their kids? There's a famous car bomb at a mall. There's a bookstore where kids and their parents were getting ready to buy their book supplies to go back to school, puts a bomb in front of that, kill kids, women, children. So what, what type of person? So Pablo Escobar was not a person. Uh, he was just a, a mass murderer, a killer. A yeah, I mean, it, it was just something. That's just why we say we had never seen before. Murph, you, you called him a demon? Absolutely. This guy had no remorse. He had no conscience. Uh, People say, well, you know, if Pablo had applied his business acumen to legitimate business, he could have been just as wealthy. That's not true. His Mm. business model was different than what you use. His (laughs) business model was, Chris, I want you to do this. If you don't do it, I'll kill you. And when you didn't do it, he followed through. And he not only killed you, he killed your wife. He killed your children, your mother, and your father. That sends out a message. That's not a business model. That's just a demon. That's an evil person walking on the face of the earth with you and me. This may be tangential, but how does it make you think about, if you will, the human spirit or human beings? Like, as you look back on this and and you are dealing with this pure evil. Well, for me, it was it was our job. But and I was I was going on this a while ago when I went sideways, uh, got on another topic there. Uh, first responders, military, law enforcement, they'll understand this. That you know, you get down there and it's it's. Very concerning when you first start out and find out the guys put $300,000 price tag on your head just because you're a DEA agent. Well, then you start working with the cops and, and you face a lot of the dangers. But, you know, we get used to things, don't we? Mm-hmm. And it was exciting. I mean, you want to experience an adrenaline rush? <laughs> it doesn't require alcohol. It doesn't require smoking weed. Or so are you guys the else. same? Yeah, Are you guys like uh, 
you know, one of the biggest risks, risk takers in the sports world are those guys that fly in those wingsuits, those squirrel suits, you know? Yeah. I think that's crazy. Uh, yeah. No. You do. But like, <laughs> you guys are like, this is like bungee jumping times a million, right? In terms of the <laughs> adrenaline rush. And even yeah. if you're in your late twenties, early thirties, like, were you guys adrenaline junkies? I, I wasn't. I mean, it was, <laughs> believe me, I was not. Did at you all. have a but death wish, no, Javier? You know what? It it was like Steve said. Of course, it's exciting, but I mean, you you had a target, you had a person that you needed to go after. In the risks that were involved, you didn't think about it at the time. Uh, like you know, Steve says it best. We were jumping out of helicopters, and we were never trained. Uh, to jump out of choppers. Uh, and you know how we used to be dressed? We used to dress just civilian clothes. They did not let us put any uh, sort of official attire. You know what? In the, Were you wearing like bulletproof vests? No, or? no, no vest, nothing. Never. Just a Never. shirt, shirt uh, blue jeans. And you know what? In, for law enforcement that's listening out there, a uh, great little lesson. You know what? I came close to being shot one day, and I it was an, an operation where jeans and a shirt. After the operation came through, one of the soldiers, um, I think he was like a captain, comes up to me. He says, sir, you did not know how close I came to pulling that trigger. I said, what? He says, I didn't know who you were. You had a shirt on, jeans, you know, and when... Shit hits the fan in a, in a firefight, blue on blue. Everybody just knows that about that one. Friendly fire. Yeah, friendly right. fire. He says, I didn't know who you were. I had you in my side, and I was just going to pull the trigger to shoot you when the colonel walks up to you. I said, oh, I better stop. You know, and I learned a valuable lesson that day. That's why when I became a, a DEA boss, I preached on guys, you got to have your your DEA, your ray jacket, has sent me your badge hanging, some identification because we've lost a lot. Well, not we've lost people in friendly fire. And I think military, you know, also what I'm talking about. But put on something to identify you as a good guy. When shit hits the fan, everybody starts shooting. Because if you don't have a white hat on, we don't know you're one of the white hats. Exactly. So I learned the lesson. <laughs> that wow. So they, they, see, it was beneficial that I'm so white. <laughs> yeah. although being so tall you you must have been a little bit of an easier target yeah, you know i'm taller than almost everybody in that country except colonel martinez was yeah, taller yeah. than me and there was that one lieutenant that young lieutenant yeah, that was, yeah. was taller yeah yeah colonel martinez like she said was the leader of the search block and uh colonel ugo martinez great guy great hero in colombia he's the one who organized uh, the search and uh after pablo escobar surrenders colonel martinez what, remind me what year he surrenders I mean. it was 1991 the surrender of pablo escobar which is another and what what air, what forces air. him to surrender at that point wow you remember we talked about uh, when he, he challenged his country? Remember yeah, we said we that? declared war on the, the country. Terrorism, the people, innocent people getting killed every day. Uh, civilians, innocent people, police officers. We saw there was a, a person who was running for president of Colombia. His name was Luis Carlos Galán. And he was going to be the next president of Colombia, and he hated Pablo Escobar, and Pablo hated Galan because Galan was part of his uh, campaign platform was, if I am elected, I am bringing back extradition. Pablo Escobar hated extradition. And where was he going to extradite him to? To the United States. Pablo was wanted in yeah. the United States, but under the Constitution of Colombia, it was unconstitutional that there was no extraditions. But when Pablo Escobar killed the next upcoming president of Colombia, Galan, it's when the old president, you know, for the history people out there, a guy by the name of Barco Vargas, basically called the ambassador, U.S. ambassador, says, I don't care about our constitution. I am authorizing extradition. Wow. That was great for us. So when we catch him, he's, he's going to the United, to the United States, States of America States. to face justice right. there. And Escobar hated extradition. Matter of fact, Escobar formed a committee or a club called the Extraditables. And his model was the letterhead on the, on the form was, I prefer a tomb in Colombia than a jail cell in the United States. And then he would drop the sleeflets at the car bomb sites saying, I am Pablo Escobar and I'm going to kill as many people as I can. That's what factored into Colombia accepting his surrender. 
so what the president did and the attorney general had a lot to do with this, they created what they call a self-surrender program. So you could come in and agree to plead guilty to any crime of your choosing. So, you know, here, Pablo, we're talking about a man who's responsible for thousands and thousands of murders. So in exchange for pleading guilty to that one crime, whatever you decide you want to plead guilty, it had to be a felony, what we call felony here in the United States. In exchange for that, they absolved you of every other crime you ever committed in your life to include murders, to include mass murders. Pablo said, well, that's all great. He said, yeah, I want to surrender. And they said, well, no, oh, we're just ecstatic. You know, please, thank you, Mr. Escobar. And he said, wait a minute, I've got conditions. He said, first of all, I want to build my own prison, you know, because I need it to be safe. Uh, but you know what? I don't want the, the citizens of Colombia to suffer the tax burden, so I'll pay for that. Well, that's a real magnanimous gesture, isn't it? Second, listen, the guards that are going to be there, I want to handpick those because I have to know that I can trust them, you know, because I'm afraid that some uh, infiltrator might get in there and try to assassinate me in my prison. And by the way, I'll pay their salaries as well so the taxpayers in Colombia don't have to bear that burden as well. Okay, wonder where their loyalty lied, right, to wherever that paycheck was coming from. Third, the good guys, meaning the Colombian National Police, the Colombian military, and the gringos were not allowed to come within two miles of the perimeter of that prison. So he had he had that that buffer zone, that safety buffer zone, that like a DMZ around his prison. Yeah. Fourth is he said, I'll plead guilty, but no more than five years. To all of those things, the government of Colombia said, Okay, thank you. And I've heard you guys talk about his prison, air quotes. Uh isn't anything that I might identify as looking like a prison. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. The, no. The prison was a country club setting. Yeah. When we get there, there was one set of bars, but it was just, if you would go to the front, you could see some bars, but it was just one-sided bars. The rest were, it was, uh, he called it a, uh, they called it the cathedral. It was a country club setting. He had his own apartment, luxurious apartment. He had offices. All the prisoners had their own apartments built into the there were at the prison there was no 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 railings no bars nothing like and that and the colombian government accepts this well but they do not know i'll be honest we do not know and the colombian government you know what we also like to tell people think about if you're the person there's two sides right to every coin yep what was the other side you're seeing all all these innocent people, women, children, get killed on a daily basis. Assassinations in Medellin were three to 400 on a weekend, and all Escobar related. And, and what would the population of Medellin been, have been at the time? At that time, it was about three million. Two million. Two, yeah, two million. So in a city of two to three million, yeah. how, many, how many murders in a weekend? Oh, two, three hundred. Two, three hundred that we could account. And then there was a lot of bodies that were being found all over the place. Yeah. So if if you're the president and you have a chance to end the violence, to end the killings, I'm not saying he did the right thing. We did not like the uh, what, when he did the surrender. We hated that. We didn't agree with the Colombian government. But you know what? They did it and the bombings stopped. The killings stopped in Medellin because they were all Pablo Escobar related. So people. So were from safe. that perspective, Escobar. Uh, held up his end of the bargain, which is if you let me build this compound, stop I'll stop people. killing people. Yes. And he did, yeah. at and, least and for some did. time. He did. He did. But like you said, once, you know, and, uh, you know, the famous escape when uh, basically uh, we found out that Pablo Escobar was doing everything inside the prison. He killed two of his best friends inside. And he was running, basically. He was. He had declared another war in Medellin. He was killing There's two families. From, from the pr prison. Yeah, from prison. When the Colombian government decided to get him to transfer him, basically the Colombian government knew that Pablo Escobar was not in a prison. It was a country club setting that he had killed two of his best friends, and he was starting to kill a lot of other people in Medellin because of a revenge. It was a dope deal, basically over some money uh, that Pablo Escobar thought his two top lieutenants had stolen, and they had not stolen that So how long did he sort of behave inside this quote-unquote prison? Year. He was there one So he didn't year. kill anybody, best we know, for a year. Right. They were behaving until... His ego that uh, he found out that two of his lieutenants had stolen some money from him, which was not correct. So he brought him into the prison. Pablo Escobar himself killed one of them. 
the Sicaros killed the other one, and then he tells all the Sicaros in Medellin, there was two big families, go out and wipe them out. You know, I mean, hundreds of people kill everybody, steal whatever they own, uh, businesses, ranches, cattle, it's all mine. And that's when the government of Colombia said, enough is enough, we got to move him. So they sent in Colombian military guys to move him. They were bringing him back to a real prison in Bogota, and that's when he fought his guards, Sicarios. He walks out of that prison, and the next day, Steve and I show up at the so-called prison. And then we, you know what? We, <laughs> this we is 90, expect, 92 now? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We do not expect what we found. <laughs> you know, and one of the other things I didn't mention is, uh, there were no stipulations in his agreement to take any of his assets. So, you know, Pablo was reportedly worth between 8 and $30 billion, and that's not a statistic made up by the United States. That came from Forbes magazine. And this is in the early 90s. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, I saw an article on the Internet here, I don't know, six months ago, and, of course, if it's on the Internet, you know it's true, right? And it was raiding the richest. We smiled about it. You don't believe that? <laughs> so, I don't know. I spent a lot of time on the internet looking yeah. for Sasquatch. <laughs> for a Sasquatch. Yeah, try, trying, to, trying to figure out which aliens helped build some of the pyramids <laughs> and shit. There you go. But um, yeah, anyway, this article was raiding the, I don't know, the 15 richest criminals of all time. Pablo's still number one at $30 billion. You know who's number two? El Chapo. Chapo Guzman. Wow. And you know what his net worth was? $1 billion. So nobody's ever built a criminal empire. He's like the category Pablo king. Is. He's the man. 80% of the, of the business. And off the top of your head, Murph, do you know what bin Laden was worth at his peak? Because, no, you know, the was, bin Laden family was, worth, was, was very wealthy coming from Saudi Arabia. Do you, I think he was worth the price of a bullet, in my opinion. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. <laughs> but but my, my, my point is he wouldn't have been close in terms of financial uh, resources and assets. Not that I'm aware of, but I honestly don't know. I don't know. And so does that make the cocaine business the most lucrative business of all time or uh, in terms of criminal business? Certainly seems like it financially, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, what the other question we get asked is, you know, how did he, uh, the, the money, what type of money was involved in the mid 80s? And you know what? I, you know, uh, I tell people, and, you know, most of them all agree when I or raise their hands when I ask them, who has seen Scarface? And it's like 90% of the people raise their hands, yeah. right? It's a, it's an epic movie. It's of one course. of those cult movies, right? And Say I hello people, to my little friend. Yeah, exactly. Right. Everybody knows that. But, <laughs> but the money that was involved in that uh, business in that you know time of uh, in Miami was actually accurate. Yeah, there was tons of money. That kilo of cocaine uh, was going for about $80,000 in Miami for one kilo. So if you're doing, Pablo was estimated at doing 2,500 kilos for one, uh, for, you know, once you get to Miami, you're looking at 80,000 times 2,500. And if you're doing this on a daily basis, I mean, your profit margin was in the billions. And, and he had to a- make that kilo in the jungles around Medellin, Colombia, was about, about $1,000 to make one kilo of cocaine, transport it three to four. So your additional investment is 5,000. So you money people out there, right? Uh, working, you know, uh, your uh, initial investment was $5,000 and your return was going to be about 75 to $80,000. Even uh, I can do that math. Okay. <laughs> those are called hey, healthy. Those are called healthy gross margins right there. <laughs> healthy gross margins. <laughs> yep. And it was cash being brought back. He, he wanted cash on the barrel in Colombia. So uh, it, that's why, you know, if you look at that, that uh, business, that cocaine business in the mid-80s, people were getting rich. You know? And, and, and the dis- the, one of the things that blows me away is, is sort of the distribution capability, how you get it from Colombia to the United States, to Europe, uh, and then, of course, how you get the cash back. And I've heard you know, you guys talk in, in your book and so forth, the level of innovation around the distribution and the movement of the product and the cash, he, he in that sense, was very innovative, yes? He was. And, and you know, we that's one of the things we show in our presentations is just to give people an idea. And, and before we show the pictures and explain it to them, with the, I tell everybody, there's only one limitation when it comes to smuggling anything. And it's simply right up here in your brain. It's your imagination. Mm-hmm. You know, the first time we ever saw Columbia produce heroin, the, the cops called us over. We went to their office and the cocaine or the heroin 
So it was a car, a corrugated cardboard box. And if you know corrugated cardboard, you got two pieces of paper and in between you got that little zigzag thing, right? So they would take these little minute straws and fill them full of heroin and slide them down into those little bitty holes. Wow. I mean, they, they developed a method of liquefying cocaine, sending it as liquid. That's, you know, you just don't expect to see that. They would impregnate clothing. Weren't, weren't they, am I remembering this right? They put it in coke. Bottles or cans? Am I remembering this right? They, well, they would yeah. they would drain the liquid coke out, but they put powder cocaine back in there, seal the can up, and ship it away. I mean, it's just <laughs> there's uh, something poetic about that. Right? Hey, things go better with cokes. What I don't, right. I don't know. <laughs> you know and in in Miami, remember in the uh, what was it the late eighties? People about three or four died drinking the sodas that were laced with cocaine. Mm-hmm. The, the, the sodas got into the grocery stores, and it had a little bit of liquid. you know. But anyway, they drank in what they had about two or three deaths. <laughs> was it's because, yeah, it's, a, it's so concentrated. You and know? then you got people who are willing to, to take condoms and swallow those full of cocaine. And, and How many condoms would people swallow? Up to 800 grams. Which would be... That's a, a lot of that's, kilos. Yeah. Two or three co- condoms, four condoms. Oh, no, no, no that's no. a whole bunch. They're... they're they're small. They would only hold maybe not even an ounce per condom. So you had to swallow a lot of those. That's why the x-ray machine always gives it up because it looks like a little honeycomb on the x-ray from all the condoms in there. And they, they would have to shit them out. That's the only way it comes out. <laughs> and and I'd like to have that job. <laughs> Talk about a shitty job, right? A very shitty job. <laughs> and and uh, my understanding is that if one of those breaks, you're yeah. gone, right? You know, my oldest son is, is an orthopedic surgeon in Atlanta. And, and I asked him, you know, because you're always trying to educate yourself so you can do a better presentation. And I said, all right, son, here's the, here's the scenario. You have a swallower on the table and a condom of cocaine has burst open in his stomach. How do you save him? His response is, Dad, you could be at the best trauma center, at, uh, surrounded by the best trauma surgeons in the world. That's a dead man laying on the table. Nothing yeah. you can do for him. And how many mules, if I could call them that, would be operating at any one point in time, sort of at, at SOR's peak. You know what? We, we used to see them, uh, I mean, on an airplane, there could be as many as five to 10 mules on a, when it first started, because no one was really checking into it. I was like, what, what did they do? Nah, that's not possible. Swallowing, you know, so it's something new. Uh, so, you know, some people died because it, uh, it exploded inside their system. Other people died because they did not want to pay. They get to Miami, take them to the bullshit hotel. They kill them, cut them open. You save yourself $10,000 because that was about the going rate. Uh, one of the best examples I saw, it was a, a lady walking through the airport in Bogota. This is funny because young police officer, rookie type guy, says, what, what happened to you? And, you know, she had a one-way ticket to Miami. She says, you have cash when you get to Miami? Oh, they're going to pick me up. No cash. What's going on? Why are you limping? She says, oh, well, you know what? I'm embarrassed, but I got a butt lift operation. Said <laughs> the the broke police officer, lady, you're broke and you have a butt lift operation. There's something not right. What happened is they had sewn about a, a pound of heroin in each butt cheek. The cuts had already been infected. Uh, gangrene. Uh, I just want to make sure I understand. How do you sew cocaine into someone's ass? How, how does they, that work? They get a bullshit doctor, uh, cut them open, and they had plastic bags. You know, like a swallower. So it was the the bags were bigger, uh, basically to uh, form the the shape of the butt. You know, so in each butt wow. cheek, and uh, just like but, an implant, yeah, right, yeah, just like an implant. But like I said, I think that young police officer saved her life. You think they were going to take her to a, a hospital, a doctor? They're going to kill her, cut it open, dump the body, you know, somewhere. We saw the video of the of the of a medical facility removing the, the bags of cocaine from her butt cheeks. And it was the infection just poured out when they, yeah. when they slid it open, it just literally the pus poured out of her cheeks. Wow. Like it just one of the grossest things I've ever seen. And in terms of the, the condom swallowers, they would pay them. The, the promise was they were going to pay them 10 grand, but mm-hmm. they would often kill them to save the 10 grand. Yeah. They're, they're pretty cheap. Yeah. I mean, some of them got paid. Some of sure. them was righteous, but some of them, Hey, you know what? We're not paying, you know, kill them who's going to complain mm-hmm. you know exactly they're not <laughs> they're just there's no honor among thieves and how long did he reign like how long was he sort of in his if you will prime 
Well, you know what? He 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 started in because uh, we have photos of him visiting, you know, the White House. What's he about eighty one, eighty two? In the early to mid eighties. There's a famous picture of him and his son, you know, at the fence of the White House. He had a property, humongous uh, Reagan's house. president at the time. Uh, well, I'm not sure about that. Or was it at the end of the uh, Carter administration? Uh, nah, I think it was Reagan. Reagan. Maybe. I don't yeah. remember. There's a famous house in Miami uh, that Pablo Escobar bought in the low 1980s, and he signed the property with his proper name, and it's his signature. Steve and I have checked it out. And so he was he was knowingly, visibly, uh, openly yes. visiting in, the United States. In Miami. Miami was his forte. That was his headquarters. A lot of people were for him. Steve and I went to this house, and yeah, I mean, Steve, you're from the Miami area. You want to describe it? Uh, yeah, it was. It's a beautiful piece of property right on Miami Bay. It's it, the, actually the property's for sale right now for ten million dollars. Just the piece of property. So mm. it, that's how nice it is. Got a when you go out on the dock out there, you can see to the left, you can see the downtown Miami skyline. To the right, you can see. Uh, uh, South Beach and South Miami over in that area. It really is a beautiful piece of property. He had bought this house in 1980. Um, eventually, uh, DEA built a case and seized the house in the late 80s, and it went up for auction, and another family lived there, and then and then the current owners purchased it and tore the house down. Um, so it was uh, – he's living right there under our nose. we got pictures of him and the family hanging out at Disney World in Orlando. <laughs> We talked to some of the neighbors when we went back then, and some of the older neighbors remember said, "Yeah, we thought he was a, a diplomatic uh, ambassador type because he always had bodyguards. We thought he was an ambassador." And uh, the funny thing, and you know what? It was Halloween. Everybody in the neighborhood used to go up because he used to give cash instead of candy. Holy <laughs> <Or> Halloween. <shit. laughs> Great story. Yeah. Trick or treat, but but now why wouldn't the U.S. government just arrest him then and there? Because he was not known. So they didn't then. know not what he was, he was when he was he hanging was. out in we Miami. Did not know exactly. Once the pressure was put in about the mid-80s, Pablo Escobar, once we filed charges on him in Miami, Pablo knew that you know he was wanted. It was up. Why, yeah, he, and that's why he never wanted extradition. You know, he always wanted to stay in Medellin because he knew if he came to the United States, he was not going to be able to bribe anybody. So it was that was his main. And you know what? And I'm proud of the fact that Pablo Escobar. The only thing that he was afraid of, well, um, he was afraid of a lot of things, but what really was, you know, extradition. Never wanted to come to the United States. Because he knew what he was going to face here. Right. Right. Well, there it is, part one. And um, listen, I had the conversation and I can't wait for part two. <laughs> I hope that's true for you, too. Uh, if you're If you're loving this episode... Why not share it with somebody that you love right now? Uh, most uh, most um, podcast apps have a share feature right there. You can send it to them. And uh, make no mistake, your shares with your friends and uh, your shares on social media mean the world to us. And if you're not subscribed to this podcast, make sure you hit subscribe on whatever your podcast player of choice is so that you'll get part two and everything else we have coming down the uh, pipeline here. All right. We would like to thank... The real DEA narcos themselves, Javier Pena and Steve Murphy. Uh, to learn more about their book, their public speaking and teaching, and all the cool things they're up to, visit DEANarcos.com. That's DEANarcos.com. Also, check out my friends at One Life Fully Lived, the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. The number one life fully lived.org. Also, why not um, uh, check out my new marketing podcast, Lockhead on Marketing. It's on strategy and mindset. And at the risk of sounding immodest, uh, after about six or eight weeks uh, being out, we hit number one in business and number one in marketing. Check out Lockhead on Marketing. Now, is it time to scale yourself? Why not check out the power of a virtual assistant with my friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants? Check them out at bottleneck.online. And if you like these kinds of podcast conversations, then you will love the Unstructured Podcast with my friend Eric Hunley. Check out Eric Hunley's Unstructured Podcast. And I also want to tell you about my friends at interviewvalet.com. If you're a thought leader and you want to get your leading thoughts on some leading uh, podcasts, that's what they specialize in. Uh, visit interviewvalet.com today. 
And don't forget the great folks at the Front Row Foundation. This nonprofit makes a gigantic difference to people who are facing the potential of the end of their life. And uh, having been associated with these folks for a while, I'll tell you, it's a very profound experience. Please visit thefrontrowfoundation.org. All right. I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain disturbed. Also want to uh, ask you to thank somebody in law enforcement and let you know that we have a new producer and a new editor, my dear friend Jason DeFilippo. He was the uh, producer of Tim Ferriss for years. Um, he's worked with Jordan Harbinger for years. He's literally a podcast legend. He hosts uh, or co-hosts the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, uh, which not only is one of my favorite, but I think the best sounding podcast on the Internet. And now he's here with us. Welcome on board, Jason. also want to thank Mike D., our former producer, and uh, Sarah Knox and Jamie J. continue to produce our website and do other technical magic for us and uh, show notes by Diane Gervasio. Need to remind you to tell two people you love about two podcasts you love. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Remember to listen to Joan Jett. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Marcus Rust, CEO of Roseacre Farms. Sorry, Marky, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much, my friends. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different.